perpetual traveller through the Bible. Please join me for this bird's eye view of the scriptures. Stay as long as you like and let us together discover a bit more about the Bible from the beginning to the end. Now this podcast is going to be a little longer than normal. We are going to cover the entire New Testament Pentateuch, that is the four Gospels and the book of Acts in one sitting. And that will not be easy, but I will do my best. The definition of the word biography is an account of a person's life written, composed or produced by another. I have been asked by some people if the four Gospels are a biography of Jesus, and if not, what are they? After all, in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verses 25, the Apostle states, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Why is it necessary to have four Gospels? Why not just one Gospel? That would be like trying to take a single photograph of a building that would adequately represent the entire structure. It is impossible to take a picture that shows all five sides of the building at one time. There are many things which are similar or the same in the four Gospels, but the writers were not trying to do the same thing. But there is a distinct portrait of Christ shown in each of the four Gospels. We cannot have a full understanding of Christ until we have seen all four of these portraits. You can't get a clear, well-rounded picture of Christ until you have all four Gospels in view. Here is my reasoning. Firstly, we learned in the last episode of this podcast that the Old Testament is filled with pictures of the coming Messiah. In the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah and Zechariah, they spoke of the Messiah as coming as the King, the King of Israel. This is what the nation of Israel had as the portrait of Christ in their minds. This is one of the main reasons why Israel rejected the Lord Jesus when he did come. They had only one of his portraits in mind. They saw his coming as a great triumphant redeemer and king, rising against the nations who were their enemies. When Jesus didn't do that, they decided that he wasn't the one. Even John the Baptist fell into that pattern of thinking. Look at what John the Baptist asked Jesus when he was in prison. John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Secondly, there are Old Testament prophecies which speak of Messiah as the servant, as the suffering one. The prophet Isaiah gives this foreview. Jesus, as the coming of the one who is to suffer, is also portrayed in the foreview of the story of Joseph in Genesis. The Hebrews were confused by these two kinds of pictures. Many of the rabbis said in their writings that there must be two messiahs, one called Messiah ben Joseph, or Messiah the son of Joseph, and the other Messiah ben David, or Messiah the son of David. Messiah ben David was to be the kingly one, and Messiah ben Joseph the suffering one. They couldn't see Jesus 
as the one Messiah. Thirdly, the Old Testament pictures Christ's coming as man. He was shown to be born of a virgin, grow up in Bethlehem and walk among men. There are pictures of his childhood, youth and young manhood. Finally, the Old Testament has pictures which speak of him as God, the everlasting one. Micah 5 verses 2 to 4 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So all of these Old Testament prophecies and pictures can be placed under these four headings. King, Servant, Man and God. Matthew's Gospel, of course, is the Gospel of Christ as King. There are a number of characteristics which make it unique in this way. The first thing Matthew does is to give us Christ's genealogy. A genealogy is very necessary for a king so that we can be sure he is of the royal family. Matthew traces the genealogy of the Lord Jesus back through King David to Abraham, who was the father of the nation Israel. Christ's royal genealogy confirms him as king of Israel. Throughout Matthew, Jesus speaks as king and acts as king. He speaks with authority and acts with authority. In the Sermon on the Mount, he speaks with the authority of Moses and more. Matthew 5 verses 21 to 22 says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Finally, in Matthew 7 verses 28 to 29 it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. To the Jews, Moses was the great authority, but here came one who gave additional teaching beyond what Moses said. Jesus acts with authority, that of a king. He dismisses the evil spirits and commands them to leave. He passes judgment upon the officials of the nation as a king would do. In Matthew 23 verses 23 he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. As a king, he pronounces the rejection of the entire nation in Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. 
how often would I have gathered your children together, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The key phrase of the Gospel of Matthew is, The Kingdom of Heaven. It occurs 32 times in Matthew, but only twice elsewhere in the entire New Testament. Matthew is constantly referring to the Kingdom of Heaven and the King. Even in his account of the birth of Jesus in Matthew 2 verses 2, Matthew says that Christ was born King of the Jews, and that when he died, he was crucified as King of the Jews. That can be found in Matthew 27 verses 37. There are several great messages or discourses in Matthew, namely the Sermon on the Mount, the parables of Matthew 13, and the Olivet Discourse. The Sermon on the Mount has been described as the great purpose of Christ the King, the effect that God intends making in human life when the Kingdom of God comes into a human heart. And that is why this sermon has entranced people throughout the centuries. The parables of Matthew 13 are the program of Christ the King. In these parables, the King tells us what is going to happen and how it is going to be accomplished in God's overall plan. He shows that, through outward defeat and failure, His purposes shall be accomplished. In the Olivet Discourse, there the great revelation from Christ the King of the pitfalls that confront those who are involved in the program of the King that threaten faith. Prior to the Olivet Discourse, when he was in the temple, Christ announced to the rulers of Israel with kingly majesty that the nation had lost its place. He says in Matthew 23 verses 38 to 39, See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the Gospel of Matthew shows Jesus the King. In contrast, Luke doesn't say Jesus was born to be King of the Jews, he says he was born to be the Saviour, in Luke 2 verses 11. Matthew's Gospel ends without any reference to the ascension of Christ, because the King belongs on earth, and therefore his kingdom is a kingdom which is to come on the earth. The Gospel of Mark pictures Christ as the servant. There is no genealogy at all. The genealogy of a servant is not important. In Mark's Gospel, our Lord simply appears on the scene. But what does a servant require in place of a genealogy? He needs credentials, a reference. In the first chapter of Mark, we are given Christ's credentials and his references. His first reference is John the Baptist, who gives him a good character reference, saying, And John preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then you have the reference of God the Father and the witness of the Spirit. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. 
And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The key word in Mark's Gospel is immediately. That is the word of a servant, isn't it? When you give a servant an order, you want it to be carried out immediately. Immediately appears 42 times in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Matthew and Luke is filled with parables, but there are only four parables in Mark. They can be found in Mark 4, verses 1 to 20, Mark 4, verses 21 to 25, Mark 4, 26 to 34, and Mark 12, 1 to 12. Each of them is a parable that speaks about service. They represent the servant of Jehovah, the suffering servant, described in Isaiah 53. In Mark, Jesus is never called Lord until after the resurrection, another mark of his servanthood. When we read Mark 13 verses 32 which says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So many people have wondered how Jesus could be the omnipotent God, yet still not know the time of his own coming. This is explained by the character of Mark's Gospel. Now, if you read John 15 verses 15, this will explain that, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. So even the Son, as a servant, did not know these things. The Gospel of Luke gives us the picture of Christ as man. Here he is seen in the perfection of his manhood. Luke also begins with Christ's genealogy and he traces Jesus' genealogy clear back to Adam, the father of man, linking Jesus directly with the human race. In Luke, you get a picture of human nature as it has become after the fall of man. Only in Luke, you get the story of the prodigal son, and this parable is nothing more than the story of the human race gone into the far country away from the father's house. In Luke we find most of the references having to do with Christ praying. If you want to see Jesus at prayer, read the Gospel of Luke. Prayer is a picture of man in proper relationship with God, dependent on the sovereign omnipotent God. If you read Luke 9, verses 1 to 2, it says, And he called the twelve together, and gave them power and authority over all demons, and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, and to heal. This shows that, here in Luke, he is concerned as Christ the man with the human race. In Luke, you have the picture of Jesus' human sympathy. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. He healed the man whose ear Peter had cut off. And when they arrested Jesus in the garden, he healed the man whose ear Peter had cut off when they arrested Jesus in the garden. No other gospel tells us about these two incidents, but Luke gives us the sympathetic human aspect of our Lord. In Luke, we also have the most detailed account of Christ's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Here he sweats blood as he experiences the sorrows of humanity. That is our Lord as a man, feeling our own weaknesses, entering into our trials, being tempted as we are. Luke gives us this picture all the way through his gospel. In Luke you have a large portion of the same truths that are incorporated in the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew. But Luke does not call them the Sermon on the Mount, but the Sermon on the Plain, in Luke 6, verses 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place, with a great crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon. Why is that? I think that is where mankind is. All of us are on the same level before God. All of us are helpless, guilty sinners, and the Sermon on the Plain of Luke 6 is addressed to us on that level. In Luke, Jesus was seen as a man in agony of Gethsemane, and then as a man dying upon the cross. Luke shows us that there the old man was nailed to the cross and rose as a new man in Christ. Luke gives us the most information regarding the resurrection of Christ, and that is important. The hope of mankind is now in Jesus risen from the dead. Hebrews 2 verses 8 to 9 declares that, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him but we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now John's Gospel presents Christ as God. John's Gospel, more than all the other Gospels, is used in evangelism because the key question all people have is, is Jesus Christ really the Son of God? In John's Gospel, we find only a brief genealogy. Three of the Gospels begin with a genealogy, Matthew, Luke and John, but in John it is a very brief one, because it is the account of Christ's divine nature. This genealogy is only one verse long. John 1 verses 1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We have only two persons in this genealogy, the Father and the Son. The book of John chronologically refers to a time before the book of Genesis. It refers to a time before the creation. Everything we do is preceded by a thought, or a concept, or a word. We think of it first, and then we do it. And in the same way, God thought of creation before he actually made it. And there is Jesus, right at the beginning, with God, and was God. In the Gospel of John, there is not a single word about Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is because the Son of God does not enter into the suffering as the Son of Man does. Of course it is the same person. But John leaves that account out because it doesn't fit into the picture he is creating of Christ. In John 18 verses 3 to 6, there is an incident that is only mentioned in John's Gospel. It shows us Christ as God and his authority as the Son of God. So, 
Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. Jesus, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now seven times in John's Gospel, Jesus claims to be God by the use of that name, I am. In John 6 verses 35 and 48, he says, I am the bread of life. In John 8:12 and John 9 verses 5, he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10 verses 9, he says, I am the door. In John 10 verses 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. In John 11 verses 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14 verses 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And in John 15 verses 1, he says, I am the true vine. There is only one great message in the Gospel of John, and that is the upper room discourse. This discourse is the blueprint for the body of Christ, the way in which God proposes to dwell with man. The discourse closes with the account of Thomas, who comes after the resurrection, full of doubt and despair, just like many of us. He questions if Jesus can do anything for him. When Thomas sees the pierced hands and the pierced side of Jesus, he bows before him and confesses, My Lord and my God. That is the message of John, My Lord and my God. It is interesting that John waits until chapter 20 verses 30 to 31 before explaining his purpose for writing his gospel. It is, in my opinion, that by the time a person has read this far, the purpose already will have been accomplished. The book of Acts is actually incorrectly titled. It is called the Acts of the Apostles, but there are very few apostles in it. Only Peter and Paul and James are mentioned. This book should probably be called the Acts of the Body of Christ because it is the great unfinished book of the New Testament. It is the story of the proclaiming of Jesus Christ throughout the whole world. It begins in Jerusalem and moves to Judea, Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth. We are still engaged in that activity today. The Holy Spirit is still writing the book of Acts and we all still have a part in it. If we are talking and working in the power of the Spirit, then these things in Acts are taking place in our lives. The book of Acts is a tremendously fascinating and interesting book. It is the record of apostolic success. Luke, the writer of the book, is the most accurate historian of the New Testament. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Luke here is referring to the gospel he has already written. In the gospel of Luke, you have the record of what the Lord Jesus began to do. In Acts, Luke gives us the record of what our Lord is continuing to do, through us. In Luke 12 verses 50, Jesus declares, 
I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Before the crucifixion, Jesus was limited in his activity. Now he is no longer limited, because when the Spirit of God came, the omnipotence of God was let loose among men and women. The result is the book of Acts in our Bible. The key to the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. John 16 verses 13 to 15 states, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine, therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. There is something unique about the end of the book of Acts that makes it feel abrupt. It ends with the words, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It certainly leaves a hanging question. What about Paul? Did Paul die at the end of these two years? Was he set free for a while and die as a martyr sometime later? How about the possibility of a fourth missionary journey? But this hanging question seems to be done on purpose by Luke. It leaves us, the reader, with the sense that the book of Acts wasn't about Paul to begin with. The whole book was and is about God's Holy Spirit working through God's Word and God's people to build God's kingdom. How can we, as Christians today, pick up where Paul and the rest of the early Christians left off? We can rely upon God's Spirit to work through God's Word to convert sinners and to build His church. We can preach and teach the Gospel with the aim to persuade, and we can invite repenting and believing sinners to join with us in following and bearing witness for Christ until He comes. This is David Wiles, your fellow traveler in Christ, and this has been the podcast with the Bible, From the Beginning to the End, Episode 17.